0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 150, An End of an Era, the Triumph of Christianity. Today we're going to tackle the history from about 660 right up to the lead of the Synod of Whitby. And we're going to have a lot of moving parts, but the theme that's developing here is one of the last gasps of paganism in Britain and the rise of two rival imperiums one based in Northumbria, and another based in Mercia. The major players for today's episode are King Oswiu of Northumbria, as well as his chief rival, King Wolf-Hera of Mercia. However, into the mix will come a number of sub-kings, members of the clergy, and some intriguing lesser nobles. But much of the political story of this period in history really does revolve around those two characters. Alright, let's get to it. So he had a shift in power in Essex, and the cracks were forming in Oswiu's imperium. However, his son had married the daughter of the deceased King Anna of East Anglia, which meant that his son was now the nephew-in-law to the current king of East Anglia, King Æthelwald. So there still were some ties between Northumbria and East Anglia. But as we've been learning, things were getting a bit shaky for Oswiu. But, things weren't all wine and roses for Wolf Hera, either. And we know that because something happened in the south that gave Wolf Hera a bit of a headache. Do you remember Chenwal? I'll forgive you if you don't. He was the king of the West Saxons who married Penda's sister, and then foolishly decided to set her aside. And Penda didn't really appreciate that, so he launched a war against the West Saxons that resulted in Chenwal running away and seeking sanctuary for several years with King Anna. And then later on, Chenwal came back and took control of Wessex, though it's not entirely clear what Penda thought about that, or even if he had any thoughts about it, since some scholars have suggested that the dating might be wrong and he might have come back after Penda was dead. So, yeah, Chenwal. And if I lost you with that lightning recap, what you need to know for right now is that Chenwal and Penda's family have less than a positive history. And so we're told that in 661, at Easter, things sparked up between these two families. And do you see what I mean about Easter? Again, we've got another instance of violence exploding in Easter. You really have to keep your heads down on that holiday. So apparently on Easter of 661, conflict between Mercia and the West Saxons flared up again. And we're told that Chenwall fought Wolf Hera at Pontisbury. Now, we aren't given any details on why the fight started, but chances are, Wolf Hera was building upon his father's legacy and trying to reestablish a Mercian-centered imperium. And why not? His father and brother might be dead, but he still had the warbands that brought his father victory on so many occasions. So why not use them? That would be my guess, anyways. And apparently... Chenwal hadn't learned any new tactics since his last fight against the Mercians, because this war ended in a similar way, with Chenwal and his warbands legging it. And they were chased all the way down to Ashdown by the enraged Mercians and King Wolf Hera, who ravaged the land as they advanced. And this fight didn't stop there. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that on that same year, Wolf Hera took his warbands into the Isle of Wight, which was to the south of the West Saxons and also was the last pagan kingdom in the east. And there he took control of it. And then Wolf Hera did something pretty interesting. He transferred the rule of the Isle of Wight to King Aethelwale of the South Saxons. Now you might be saying, the South Saxons? When did they come back? We haven't heard peep from them for about a hundred years. And to that I say, well done, hypothetical listener. You have a hell of a memory to even remember that there were South Saxons. So yeah, for the most part, the South Saxons were famous for not doing all that much except maybe losing the Battle of Baden Hill under King Ayla. But even that is subject to debate. And then, after having the first Bretwalda, they just sort of rapidly vanished into obscurity, almost certainly being gobbled up by the expansive West Saxons. Well now, over a hundred years after that event we learn of the king of Sussex, and we're being told that he was given further territory by Wolf Hera. So what's going on there? Well, it's possible that Aethelwale had been reigning in the area for quite some time, perhaps having been granted the territory by Penda when Penda ousted Chenwal of the West Saxons for the first time. On the other hand, maybe he was installed following Wolf Hera's defeat of Chenwal at Pontisbury and Ashdown. Or maybe he took the throne at another point, and we just don't have a record of it. Whatever the case, the South Saxons are back in the historical record, and they're ruling over their own territory, as well as the Isle of Wight. Now, you might be wondering why Wolf Harrow would bother giving this territory to Aethelwale, rather than, I don't know, a member of his own family, or maybe even keeping it for himself, like probably Osweu would have done. Well, much like his dad... It looks like Wolf Harrow was trying to build an empire rather than just a single unified kingdom. And that really was the best way to go about ruling over large swaths of territory in a time when travel was difficult and there wasn't a moneyed economy. Dealing with sub-kings who could impose his rule directly was probably way preferable to going and taking his court from place to place to place over many kingdoms and maybe only seeing one region once a year or maybe even once every couple years delegation, especially at this point in time, would have been a very effective way to rule. So yeah, this was a pretty smart move. And as for what made Aethelwale worthy of the gift of land, well, first of all, it was close to Sussex, so it would have been easy for him to rule over. Certainly easier than it would have been for Mercia to exercise direct control. Additionally, Aethelwale looks like he was friendly to Wolf Hera, and certainly far more friendly than King Chenwal of Wessex. So if anyone was going to get the gift, it would probably be Aethelwale, not Chenwal. Further, religion probably played a role. See, the thing is that unlike his father, Wolf Hera was Christian. And something happened while he was on the march in the south. He baptized Aethelwale and stood as godfather to him. And that act alone probably indicates that the two men were on good terms. But beyond that... As you might remember from earlier episodes, this was sometimes seen as a stronger bond than even blood. Being a godfather was a really big deal, and so, with zeal on his side, Wolf Hera transferred the kingdom to the control of the recently baptized King Aethelwale of the South Saxons. And then, he dispatched one of his priests, a guy named Eopa, and he charged him with converting the pagan population of the island. Then Wolf Hera went back to Mercia. So Christianity was now spreading out, not only to the major powers in the East, but also into the isolated little pockets. Paganism was coming to an end. And Wolf Hera really was taken by his new faith. So we're told that he sent for Abbot Saxulf. And he said to him, Quote, Beloved Saxulf, I have sent after thee for the good of my soul. And I will plainly tell thee for why. My brother Peda, and my beloved friend Oswe began a minster for the love of Christ and St. Peter. But my brother, as Christ willed, is departed from this life. I will therefore entreat thee, beloved friend, that they earnestly proceed on their work. And I will find thee thereto gold and silver, land and possessions, and all thereto behoveth. End quote. Now, this quote from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has always given me pause. It's a curious one. On the surface level, it's pretty clear what's happening, right? Wolf Hera is picking up where his brother left off and completing the minster at Medhabsted. And it was the same minster that was started by Peda and Oswiu. Now, Peda starting a minster along with Oswiu isn't overly shocking given that Oswiu was exercising overlordship over Peda's subkingdom. But what gives me pause is Wolf Hera's use of the phrase, my beloved friend. I mean, he's talking about the king who killed his father, whose daughter had murdered his brother, and who had nicked his entire kingdom before a rebellion had managed to put him back on the throne. That just doesn't seem like the sort of behavior that would lead Wolf Hera to feel like he had a beloved friend in Oswiu. So, what's going on there? Is this a misunderstanding of the situation by the chroniclers? Are the scribes using a flourish to imply cooperation in Christendom whether or not there was actually any cooperation? Was Wolf Hera just being politic and not wanting to get into a fight with Northumbria? It really is tough to tease out what was going on there. But whatever the case, Wolf Hera did as he promised and he poured energy and wealth into Medhamstead so that he could complete the minster that his brother had begun. And he did so with the assistance of his surviving siblings including Kenneburga and Kenneswitha, the daughters of Penda, who were destined to become saints. And importantly, his task was carried out with the Council of Deostidit, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And this is interesting because it signals that, while Wolf Hera was Christian, he was aligned with Canterbury rather than Iona which actually isn't too surprising given how brutal the line of Ida had been to his family, and the line of Ida was kind of cozy with Iona. And so, in a few years, which could be right around this point in the story, the minster was built. And it looks like it was pretty much in the same location that the current Peterborough Cathedral is. And I can't emphasize this next point enough. The construction of this minster was a really, really big deal. There weren't all that many monastic centers in Anglo-Saxon Britain at this point in time. And now, there was one in the Midlands. Which was the kingdom of the last pagan king. A king who was so successful in battle that he must have given the Christian converts pause. At least as far as the military utility for the new god went. And now, in less than a generation, you had a minster being founded under the direction of that old king's son. And it was in his territory. This was a big deal. It telegraphed a sea change in the east. And King Wolf Hera knew it. And so we're told that he sent out messengers. And he had his thanes, nobles, and Christian subjects come to the consecration of the minster. And it was Archbishop Deus did it who hallowed the minster in the names of Peter, Paul, and Andrew. And actually, the Archbishop was joined by the Bishop of Rochester, the Bishop of London, the Bishop of Mercia, and even Bishop Tudor of Lindisfarne. And beyond that, we're told in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that even King Oswiu of Northumbria was present. So there's all sorts of interesting things going on here, aren't there? I mean, we've seen Iona growing in strength. And yet here we have a moment of unity with the Bishop of Northumbria and the Archbishop of Canterbury, despite the northern region's history with Iona. And a mere handful of years after wars, shady fights, murder, and even a successful rebellion, here we have the King of Northumbria and the King of Mercia attending the consecration of a minster together. Whenever I read about this event, I always think about the Middle East Peace Summits, Who knows if it was like that, or even if it really happened the way the Chronicle says it did. But it's one of those odd moments in history where I can imagine that the tension in the room was palpable. And then, following the consecration, we're told that King Wolf Hera stood up and said, Thanks be to the high almighty God for this worship that here is done. And I will this day glorify Christ and St. Peter. And I will that you all confirm my words. I, Wolf Hera, Give today to St. Peter and the abbot Saxulf, and the monks of the Minster these lands and these waters, these merres and fens, the weirs, and all the lands thereabout lie, that are of my kingdom freely, so that no man may have any ingress but the abbot of the monks. This is the gift, from Medhamstead to Northborough, and so to the place that is called the Foley's, and so all the fen, right to Ashdyke, and from Ashdyke to the place called Feathermouth, and so in a right line ten miles long to Ugdyke, and so to Ragwell, and from Ragwell five miles to the main river that goeth to Elm, and to Wisbeach, and so about three miles to Troikenholt, and from Trokenholt right through to the fen of the Dareworth, that is twenty miles long. And so to Great Cross, and from Great Cross through a clear water called Bradney, and thence six miles to Paxlade, and so forth through all the mares and Fens that lie towards Huntingdon Port, and the Marys and Lakes of Shelf Mara, and Whittlesley Mara, and all the others that thereabout lie, with land and with houses that are on the east side of Shelf Mara, thence all the Fens to Medhampstead from Medhamsted to Wilmsford, from Wilmsford to Clive, thence to Easton, from Easton to Stamford, from Stamford, as the water runneth to the aforesaid north borough. It is a little gift, this gift, but I will that they hold it so royally and so freely that there be taken there from neither guild nor gable, but for the monks alone. Thus I will free this minster, that it be not subject, except to Rome alone. And hither I will that we seek St. Peter, all that to Rome cannot go. End quote. Okay, ignore the pronunciations, and I'm sure there were some mistakes in there because these are tiny little villages, and oftentimes they have bizarre pronunciations that only the locals know. So set that aside. And just think about what Wolf Hera just said. First of all, this sounds more like a deed than anything else, right? I can't imagine just on the fly standing up and giving a speech where I'm essentially dictating in medieval terms the same way we handle deeds of land now. And so I wonder if it really played out that way or if this was the scribes kind of roughly figuring out what he might have said or just, or just looking at how the property lines laid and just assume that he talked about it in those terms. But whatever the case... This really is huge, right? I mean, the king was giving the order an enormous grant of land that will be free of rents to the crown. And that land was to be theirs permanently and not subject to his rule. So it's basically like an independent bishopric principality. And in his rambling deed-like speech, we hear about people who were living there, right? So it follows that anyone who were living in that area would have then paid their food rents directly to the minster now. This is no minor thing. It's basically like setting up a small kingdom. And Abbot Saxulf, being kind of savvy, apparently decided to take advantage of the king's generous mood. And he asked for an additional island to build another minster dedicated to St. Mary at a place that was called Anchorig. And King Wolf Hera agreed and sent his brother, Ethelred and his two sisters, Kenneburga and Kenneswitha, to assist with the task. This family had really gone through a major change in a generation, hadn't it? Though, to be fair, Penda never really did forbid the worship of Christ, and he actually tolerated it within his borders. But still, to go from a staunch pagan king to all of his children being involved in the construction of minsters is pretty amazing. And then, after dispatching his siblings, we're told that Wolf Hera urged the importance of conversion and hoped that, should anyone revoke any of the lands that were granted, they would be punished in the afterlife. Now again, it's possible that he did say that. However, don't forget who's recording this history at this point in time. Namely, men of the cloth who had every reason to want to emphasize the importance of maintaining land rights to the church property. And you can see fingerprints of this motivation by the fact that he apparently followed up his threat by saying he hopes that anyone who expands upon the gift of the church will be rewarded in the afterlife. So, more lands for the church would lead to divine favor, and taking lands away from the church would result in a curse. Like I said, he might have said exactly that, but you can't deny that his words were definitely in line with the church's temporal goals. But regardless, we're told that Wolf Hera gave the land as a gift to the church. And then, after stating it in public that he was making this gift, we're told that he quote, wrote with his finger on the cross of Christ, saying thus, I, Wolf Hera, king, in the presence of kings, and of earls, and of captains and of thanes, the witnesses of my gift, before the Archbishop Deus did it, I confirm with the cross of Christ. And then we're told that Oswiu followed suit. Quote, and I, Oswiu. King of the Northumbrians, the friend of this minster, and of the abbot Saxulf, commend it with the cross of Christ. And then kings Sigehira and Sibi of Essex joined them. Then Kinneberga and Kiniswitha joined, and finally Archbishop Deus did it, followed suit. And it was confirmed by all the bishops and priests who were present, which included Aopa, the guy who was sent to convert the Isle of Wight. But there are a couple things that jump out at me regarding this whole event, assuming that it happened like this. First, we're seeing the issues with illiteracy, aren't we? These kings couldn't read or write, so they had to signify their agreement with the sign of the cross that they drew with their fingers. And in order to make this agreement binding and serious, since writing was still really rare, they needed a lot of witnesses. They had to do it in public. And I can't help but imagine that, I mean, maybe not with this particular agreement, but agreements at this point in time in general, this method probably led to a lot of arguments with regard to specific provisions, since it relied entirely on group memory. But the second thing that jumps out at me is that we have an enormous problem with timing. We're told that this whole meeting resulted in a charter that was written after 664, Now, co-signatories Sigehera and Sibi were the kings of Essex, and we know that they succeeded Swithelm. So the notion would be that Swithelm had died sometime before 664, and that this whole thing just went down on that year. However, we have really conflicting accounts of what was going on at this point, and the presence of Archbishop Deus did it is a huge issue for us. See, the thing is that in 664, we're told that there was a big synod, which we're going to get to very soon. And also, that there was a plague that killed a hell of a lot of people. And Deus Didit was one of the people who died that year. In fact, he didn't even make it to the Synod. Probably either because he was already really, really sick, you know, too sick to travel, or he had already died. So these dates just can't be correct, right? Something has to give. This really couldn't have all happened the way they say it does. Deus Didit couldn't have been present after 664, if he really did die in 664. So what do we do here? Well, this is one of those moments in Anglo-Saxon history where it's just hard to figure out exactly when things occurred. My guess is that it all happened before the sign on of Whitby. But how far ahead of it is anyone's guess? Those early scribes really did play fast and loose with dates. And they were writing hundreds of years after the events that they were writing about. So, this might have happened at 664. But I'm just going to put it here and say it happens sometime around now. So, after the charter was agreed to, we're told that, quote, they laid God's curse and the curse of all the saints and all Christian folks on whosoever undid anything that there was done, end quote. After all, there's no Anglo Saxon word for take back seats. But there is a weird obsession with curses, isn't there? And then the Chronicle tells us that the Pope wrote upon hearing about this quote, I, Vitellianus, Pope, grant thee King Wolf Hera, and Deostedit, Archbishop, and Abbot Saxulf, all the things you desire. And I forbid that any king or any man have any ingress but the abbot alone nor shall he be subject to any man except the Pope of Rome and the Archbishop of Canterbury. If anyone breaketh any of this, St. Peter with his sword destroy him. Whosoever holdeth it, St. Peter with heaven's key undo him the kingdom of heaven." End quote. Okay, the language there is a little bit muddy, but what he's basically saying there is if anyone takes any lands or rights away from the minster, that St. Peter is going to come along and whack him with his sword. But... If you go and uphold it, or even better, expand it, St. Peter's going to open the gates to heaven. Again, the Chronicle seems a little bit self-serving when it comes to the preservation and promotion of church lands, and what will later be termed book land. But whatever. After this, the Chronicle says that as a result of this, Medhampstead had become Petersborough. However, this is some pretty revisionist stuff by the scribes. We have a pretty solid idea of how and when Menhamstead became Peterborough, and it wouldn't be for hundreds of years. So again, you have to take the sources from this era with a grain of salt. The scribes are trying to explain why the world looks the way it does at the time that they're writing. And they're not always right. And oftentimes, what they're writing about are a blend of facts, conjecture, and outright mythology. But anyway, That's the alleged story of how Wolf, Hera, and Oswiu put aside their differences and did the pious form of a high-five upon the completion of mid Minster. And then, on the 11th of May, 664, there was an eclipse. And actually, there was a total solar eclipse that was centered in North America on the first day of May, 664. So, ten days off from what the scribes wrote about though I honestly have no idea whether or not it was viewable from the UK at the time. And I really don't understand the math of how to calculate whether or not they could have seen it. So, I don't know if there really was a solar eclipse that was viewable close to the date that was listed on the Chronicle. There was one that happened, but the world is pretty big, and the UK is pretty far from North America. Trust me, I've taken that flight far too many times. So, I just don't know for sure. But... If any of you understand the crazy astrophysics of calculating eclipses in the 7th century, write in, and I'll comment on it in a future episode. Anyway, so there might have been an eclipse. At the very least, they recorded an eclipse. And, frankly, there are quite a lot of eclipses all throughout the century, so it's entirely possible that there was. And these days, if you see an eclipse you generally will just see a bunch of school kids and geeks like myself running out and watching it through special eclipse glasses so that we don't go blind from staring at the sun. It's a moment of excitement for us, and probably anxiety for optometrists. But by and large, it's just a curiosity and a bit of fun. And only in the darkest and goofiest parts of the internet can you find people in modern society who see an eclipse as anything more than a cool quirk of orbits and light. And frankly, it's usually your crazy uncle who's sending you a paranoid email forward. But yeah, most of us get the science behind it now. But back in the 7th century, we lacked an understanding of exactly what an eclipse was. And as a consequence, they were much more mystical and were often seen as omens. And it probably should not come as a surprise to you that people tended to have confirmation bias just like they have today. So if something strange happened with heavenly bodies, they would go and look around the period of time before and after it happened and tried to see if anything correlated with that thing that happened, anything unusual. And that behavior really kicks into high gear when you have scribes trying to come up with a chronicle and make the dates work, even though they're writing long after the events took place. And so, as a result, we're told that in the same year as this eclipse, there was a disaster. Was there actually an eclipse on that same year? It's possible, but don't forget that the writers were looking for truth rather than fact. And they kind of love to fudge the dates. So don't assume that these two things definitely happened on the same year. But regardless, we're told that following the eclipse, there was a terrible plague that struck Britain. And it struck everyone, regardless of class or profession. And as a consequence, we're told that on that year... The Bishop of Lindisfarne died, as did Archbishop Deos And so did King Ereconbert of Kent. Do you remember him? He was the younger son of King Eidbald of Kent. But he ruled over Kent rather than his older brother. And that was something of a problem because much like his older brother, er Menred, who was also dead at this point, King Ereconbert left behind two sons and two daughters. And while the rules of primogeniture were ignored when King Ereconbert took the throne, you could definitely make an argument that the throne of Kent should pass to the eldest son of the eldest son of Eidbald, which would have been Ere Menred's son, rather than the eldest son of the younger son of Eidbald, which would have been Ereconbert's son. However, Ecbert, who was Ereconbert's eldest son, did have a solid claim to the throne. Namely, He was the eldest son of the last king. So what do you do here? This was something of a problem for Kent. And it's stuff like this that led to the Wars of the Roses. And we all know how well that worked out for the Plantagenets. So what do you do here? Well, Egbert and his supporters moved quickly, and he was crowned king. And then the two sons of Menred, they were named Aethelred and Aethelbert, well, they were left in the care of their cousin, the king. So problem solved, right? Well, apparently not. According to a legend written about 400 years later, a retainer of King Egbert, a guy by the name of Thunor, and that name is extremely suspect, especially given the fact that hundreds of years had passed before this was even written down. But anyway, we're told that Thunor went and killed Aethelred and Aethelbert to secure King Egbert's succession. So Egbert was basically Richard III before Richard III was cool. Or, alternatively, Ethelred and Ethelbert were the first real princes in the tower. But, you know, that doesn't really work because there wasn't even a tower yet. But anyway, this whole thing is really strange. I mean, seriously, a parallel for this would be like if the first record we had for the beheading of King Charles was dated to 2014. And it put the blame upon a servant of Cromwell named Lucifer, who was acting entirely on his own accord and arranged for the king's execution. It just doesn't seem that believable, does it? But beyond the weird name and the centuries that have passed, even if we take the tale on its face, it's still strange. I mean, King Egbert had a clear motivation for wanting his cousins dead. And on top of that, we have the fact that we're told that the king paid a guild to Domna Domna Domneif, by the way, was the murdered boy's sister. So he was paying out of pocket for this murder. And that makes you wonder if he had to pay because he was somehow complicit in the murder and he had to pay restitution, which was largely what the Ware Guild was all about. And I suppose that's possible, but it also might have been the price the king chose to pay in order to avoid future dynastic bloodshed between the two lines. I mean, if Domna Afe and her supporters felt that this was entirely in the wrong, this might have just been a way to buy them off and just put an end to this before it just spiraled out of control, like it did with the Wars of the Roses. Anyway, it's food for thought. And yeah, kinslaying. It's not just for the line of Ida. And apparently, again according to the same legend, as part of this guild, their sister, Domna Eif, was granted a massive grant of land on the Isle of Thanet, where she went about building a dual monastery. Now how this happened is hard to say. There is a minster in Thanet, and the legend is that it was founded by Domna Eif, and her daughter, Saint Mildred, was its first abbess. But there isn't a contemporary charter from the era to provide recorded evidence. So, like with most things, we have to look at the scant written record, the archaeological record, and then try and draw conclusions based upon what's available. But regardless, with the expansion of Christianity into the Isle of Wight, with the building of the Minster in Medhamstead, and the grant of land to build a secondary Minster in Ankerig, and now another Minster being under construction in Thanet, we're starting to see not just an expansion of Christian power, but an elimination of even small pockets of pagan control and the beginning of land being transferred to the clergy with the intent that it will be granted in perpetuity. Things are changing, and next time, with the Synod of Whitby, we'll see a continuation of those changes. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash British History. And really, there's a lot of different ways you can get involved. And the best way to do it is to go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and just have a poke around. All right, thanks for listening.